Ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord God, we're thankful for the day before us. We are grateful for your word. We'd ask that you would be following our minds and that our minds would follow you. In your son's name, amen. An interesting, um, well to me it was, we'll find out if it was interesting to you, collection of passages. As you scan the page, you'll see Daniel, Psalm 8, Psalm 144, Hebrews 2.5, James 4, quite a a, a range of passages. And I I do like to keep it within the context of a particular passage, but things kept coming up. Passages kept coming to mind. and, And At the end of the thought on the passage, I was looking at Psalm 8 first. Eventually I got around to Daniel 4. Now Daniel 4 is a very interesting um, portion of of the scripture. In that, uh, Abby and I were talking about this uh, a few weeks ago. Um, Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon, arguably the greatest king who ever lived, wrote it. Daniel 4 is he in the first person. He is, uh, how is it worded? Where's Daniel? Old Testament? It says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. He sounds like St. Paul writing a, a letter to the to the world. And I have here at the end uh, of chapter 4, which again Nebuchadnezzar wrote, a section that you know probably the Bible story of, where Nebuchadnezzar goes loopy for seven years, we assume seven, um, towards the end of his reign, because of his pride. It's a great lesson on pride. And here at the end of Daniel 4, at the top of the right-hand column. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. It's a great passage on pride. Like I said, Nebuchadnezzar II, Chaldean king, Neil Babylon, approximately 605 BC, uh, beginning of his reign, um, has this great lesson about majesty, but great lesson of thinking too much of himself. God drives him crazy. 
It's that line from many classical writers, I think Juvenal at least quotes it, those whom the gods would destroy, they first drive mad. Here's Nebuchadnezzar going mad for a long time. And he learns his lesson, and his lesson is this. Pride is bad. Right? Humility is good. Um, God can make you sorry that you did not. He is able to abase you. Now, a lot of people realize that pride's the big ticket item, right? That's probably Satan's problem, probably your problem, thinking too well of yourself. And so we know when we ask, are asked the question, what's the greatest sin? You would all, would you say gambling? No, you wouldn't say gambling. You'd probably say pride. And we know with Nebuchadnezzar that this is the right answer. Did you even need this passage to teach you this right answer? The part of the problem is something that's going to come up. Well, it comes up a little bit in this passage, and it's going to come up in Psalm 8 and Psalm 144. When you say pride is bad and humility is good. You are defining something. You're actually not measuring it very well. This is a distinction you might not, I'm trying to think of a way to put it um, a little more precisely so that I, you don't walk out and go, what in the world was he talking about this morning? We measure our definitions, okay? We measure our definitions. You got a definition for pride, you have a definition for humility. You in a discussion with other Christians about the Bible, well, I think pride is wrong. And everybody looks at you and says, what a genius. I measure pride as wrong. That's different than measuring the world. Okay? Say, what are you talking about? Okay, let's try again. The measurement of virtues are easy enough if someone, your mom or your dad, your Sunday school teacher, your priest, your pastor, whatever it is, hands you the list, you know, negative side, sins, good side, virtues. They even have lists like that. The seven deadly sins and the seven cardinal virtues. Right? You can get a list. Easy enough. And your mind immediately recognizes them. Sloth. That's one of the, that's one of the vices, okay? Cardinal said, sloth. And you know that when you're slothful, you're wrong. Or lustful, you're wrong. Or proud, you're wrong. You got your, you got your virtues all measured. And we think we've learned what we need to learn to live. Nobody has learned what they need to live when they've measured the virtues correctly or measured the vices correctly. And one of the things that you notice here in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar goes, 
wow, God's really in charge. He taught me my lesson. And heavens to Betsy, he made me even greater. So he says again, still more greatness was added to me. If you were prosecuting Nebuchadnezzar II for pride and hubris, you would wonder at the end of this day, at the end of writing his chapter, he turns it in for proofreading at the inspiration committee of the Bible, and they look at it and go, um, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't think you're really treating this with the right degree of seriousness. You're not talking very humble here at the end. You're talking about my majesty, my splendor, return to me. What? Now God taught me that really... He is great, and I am not, and he may be even greater. You'd be suspicious. Because you've got your definitions measured, you don't have the world measured. And in this world, let's look at David's reaction. Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. I don't know what a gitteth is. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Thou whose glory above the heavens is chanted by the mouth of babes and infants. Thou hast founded a bulwark against, because of thy foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look to thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast established. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Thou hast, yet thou hast made him little less than God, and dost crown him with glory and honor. Thou hast given him dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. It's a tremendous psalm. Quoted in the New Testament, we'll get to the quotation in Hebrews shortly. But he starts off kind of like where Nebuchadnezzar ends, right? He's figured out how majestic God is. He is able to humble proud men. But proud men, when they get humble, they don't run off to the definitions about humility or don't read it as the definitions of pride. You already knew those were right and wrong. You already knew. But if you measure, try to measure your own life, Remember a few weeks ago I was telling you that the narrative that you plan for your life will be written according to your philosophy of life. Your character development, who you are, the characters around you, how you define them. And if you do not understand what the world is, but you're running around with you know, cheap definitions about good and bad, <coughs> you won't figure it out. You won't be able to live like Nebuchadnezzar, and won't be able to live like David. Two great kings. Nebuchadnezzar is probably greater than David. But uh, what the interesting thing is, David does the same thing. God in his heaven has made a barrier. A bulwark is a, is a defense position. A, a, a holding back the, the enemies of God. And he then speaks of the heavens as that. 
when I look at thy heavens, when I look up, the sun, the moon, the stars, and then you go, who am I? Have you ever done that? Going outside of town, a few miles past the city lights, looked up in the middle of the night and found that you feel really small. We've mentioned this and this, it's almost like an inspired illustration of Douglas Adams' Vortex of Infinite Perspective in Hitchhiker's Guide, when it tells you exactly how big you are in relation to the universe and no human mind can take it. That's what we learn. God has established himself in the heavens and when you look at the heavens, the first thought, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the Son of Man without his care for him. Why is God concerned with you at all? But then David puts in some definitions of his world. Yet thou hast made him little less than God. The Septuagint says, Thou hast made him a little less than the gods. Hebrews, when it quotes it, says, you have made him a little less than the angels. So the writer of Hebrews is kind of going with a Septuagint read um, on that. But it says, you know, man was made in a place higher than the humble mind thinks. Because if you're running through life with simple definitions of pride and simple definitions of humility, you're not looking for a definition of the world as it is. You will live by, you might say, the overreach of incorrect definitions. The overreach of a, of a, a what's the error called? Overspecification. You thought no matter what that humility could never say, and my majesty got better. But humility can say that. That humility could not say that they've just made us for a little while lower than the gods. And just crown him with glory and honor. Humble minds don't say things like that. And you run into Jesus Christ. And he goes, yes, I am your master and Lord. Yes, I am God. Because measurement by definition, when you thought out precise, Hellenistic, philosophic definitions, that's not the world. That's not the things as they are. What Nebuchadnezzar and David deal with is they realize, I'm a king. Majesty and splendor belong with a king. Nothing compared to God and his kingship. That's what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. David already knew it. How majestic is thy name, whose glory above the heavens is chanted by the mouth of babes and infants. The things of God are far and away above. But you don't play, you know, pretend Christianity with easy definitions, pat definitions. You find out what is. Now, I have said already that this passage in Psalm 8 is quoted in Hebrews. Because we don't want to think of any kind of greatness when we think of humility. I'm a big fan of humility. 
I, I did, we did our child rearing seminar a few weeks ago and we covered the, the nature of teaching your children humility. It's very important. They will, they will destroy themselves. There'll be these little, you know, snowflakes that go off to college who can't stand someone saying something against their viewpoint. Um, you gotta teach them humility. But, don't just want them to have a definition of humility. They need to know what is, who they are. Not just who they are, because I know they want a blue ribbon for their Lego entry in the fair, but who you are is probably measured a little bit more acutely. But who are we as middle-class American citizens? Who are we if we're king of Israel? Who are we if we're king of Neo-Babylon? Who are we? Because it doesn't go away. What is man that thou art mindful of him is the question being asked. And then he goes, you made him pretty great. Hebrews 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. That's a great life verse right there. You've heard me say this before, if you've been around long enough. It's for the person who wants to say, come on, you're supposed to know the reference. The writer of inspired scripture did not know the reference. It has been testified somewhere, somewhere in the Bible, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou carest for him? Thou didst make him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Quote Psalm 8. Now at this point, at this point, if you were following along, and say you didn't make this distinction between the measure of a virtue and the measurement as life as it is. Because definitions of virtues can be skewed just a little bit that you think you can always say that this is bad no matter what. But measurement of reality, measurement of the world in terms of pride and humility that's what we're looking for. So you're, you're, you were looking for this, how do I deal with this, God is majestic and my man is nothing, but, you know, hey, man is something. Man is something great. Man is something in charge of everything. Everything. Or Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, I learned how I shouldn't be so proud. And, and God made me greater still. Ever, ever tell you how Leslie Nutty beat up a Seattle Seahawk player? I had to literally hold her against a wall to keep her from beating him up. This was 30 some years ago, probably. Was it before the house? Yes. Before we bought the house, so that was 36 years. So we were young, she was spunky. We were, I was uh, at a uh, conference, a youth conference in Lind, Washington, I think it was. The, the guest speaker was a Seattle Seahawks player. I do not know who it was, nor do I care. But he was so incredibly proud that he kept saying, well, you kids are not as great as I am. 
but someday you might be half as great. You know, that, that, that level of outright, uh, so Leslie had to be held against the wall. You will not kill him. It'd be bad for our reputation. Just think where our ministry would be now if I had to visit her in prison and stuff. But so whenever you hear someone not really having their conceit figured out, you know, they're just incredibly conceited, things have gone really well for them, and they've always been handsome. So we, we sort of want to move in the direction of a clean definition and measure the world by measured virtues and vices. It's helpful to look at, but measure the world as it is. But if you were looking for the answer to this oddity, this height of man, and what is man that thou art mindful of him, the height of God, but the height of man too, and then you see the quote in Hebrews, there may be an answer here. As it is, oh, if, end of verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see the universe at the foot of man. But then he says, in bold, conveniently, but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Oh, you say to yourself, it's about Jesus. And every kid knows when the question in Sunday school is put to you, the right answer is Jesus. You can always say Jesus and get it right. As a person who has got this measured idea of pride and humility that you may not ever say if you're humble, yes, I have more majesty now than before. Yes, I'm in charge of everything. Just a little bit lower than the gods. That's me. Yeah, and the, 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 the biblical person says, say, no, my, my measured virtues are right. Humility would never say anything like that. It's about Jesus. You go, well, then doesn't Jesus have the problem? Doesn't. And you have this special little you know, lockbox of, of uh, where imprecise thoughts go to die. You know, in, when, we're, when you're not precise in your thinking and somebody goes, eee. we had it at a wine, wisdom, and song. Somebody asked the question, what's wrong with human sacrifice? <laughs> and you had to remind them, our religion is based, thank you very much, on human sacrifice. So imprecise thinking sometimes can lead you on a merry, merry way through life, but eventually somebody, a sosprof or an anthroprof who's too good for his own britches, will pose you a question, and off to the lockbox of imprecise thinking. But it's not only that. But Hebrews actually drags us along with Christ. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, 
in bringing many sons to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and he who, those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I'll proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee. We didn't get to shove it off on Jesus and say, it's only about Jesus. We can say it about Jesus. Jesus is great. Jesus was made for a little while lower than the gods. Jesus has dominion. I, in my humility, have got to do the St. Francis of Assisi thing all the time. I am nothing. But Jesus says, no, no. With me, we have the same origin. I have made you brethren. When we receive 1 John 1, when we, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. We weren't given a way out with Jesus stepping in. Jesus is our entree to this control. This, this dominion. And I'm not a dominionist, a, a theocrat. I, 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 I abominate those um, approaches to life. But I want you to have a philosophy of what the world is. Not a plan. It's not a plan. It's not a plan to take over. It's not some Machiavellian thing that the Christians are going to seize power because we have the dominion theory. We know this is the way the world is. Jesus Christ had all the power. He made the world. All things were made through him and for him. And they killed him. So it's not a matter of of, hey, this is all going to work out for your benefit, but you need to know what pride and humility are. How they work in life, not how they're measured on a chart of virtues. He's made you his brother. You all have one origin. Man, that Christ was, was made for a little while lower than the gods. We were created at that height. Uh, I like the, the, the medieval cosmology. Those of you who read things like Discarded Image are, are familiar with it. Um, because it makes the earth the bottom. You know, we, you know, the ancient mind thought that the earth was the center of the solar system because they were conceited. No, they thought it was the bottom of the solar system. It was everything down to it. Not everything revolved around it. Everything down to it. But also everything toward it. In other words, it was the bottom and it was the reason. Everything focused on earth. And everything on earth focused on man. And all men focused on Christ. The very center but you had a relationship because you're made by God in God's image, in God's likeness, and given dominion over his planet. We spoiled it. But that's who you are in creation. And then in Christ, when, when the story didn't work out for men because of sin and all sorts of other bad things that came up, futility and folly and the like, 
then Jesus Christ steps in. God himself becomes man, which makes perfectly good sense because we're already in his image. He lowers himself, takes the form of a servant, humbles himself to death on a cross, and is crowned with glory and honor. And then he recreates us, those of us who are saved, recreated back into this wonderful mix of knowing where you are, knowing the dignity God has put you in, but also knowing your place. Some of us need to be put in our place. Other of us need to know the dignity of man. The worthwhileness of your pursuits, because God has given you your pursuits, well, if you're Nebuchadnezzar II, who to conquer the Middle East? That's the point. David's point? Well, to beat up all the Philistines. What's your point? What's your dignity? Who is your God? Now, the problem occurs, sure, we have problems with pride, and we have problems with fake humility, because people don't know the world they're existing in. If you take anything home from the sermon, say, I need to define the way God's universe is, and where is man? What has God done for us in creation? What has he done for us in recreation? I had to put that dash in there because you would say recreation. Recreation. You've been remade. You've been born again. You are now brothers and sons of God. Brothers of Christ. Sons of God. Made for a little while lower than the angels, but have been given dominion over all things. Psalm 144. Now why did you say, well, isn't that enough? Can we go home now? It's a free church. You can actually walk out at any moment. I will be grossly offended. (laughs) Psalm 144, a psalm of David. Blessed be the Lord, my rock. Now some people don't like this psalm because of what comes next. Who trains my hands for war. My fingers for battle. My rock my fortress, my stronghold, and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues the peoples under him. It's a great passage for the soldier who's a Christian, because you're not talking about it's always wrong to go to war. Now, God's training this guy, David, to be a soldier. He trains me for fight. He trains me for war. And then he says, verse 3, O Lord, what is man that thou dost regard him? Or the son of man that thou dost think of him? Almost the same phrase. You should ask this question of yourself. Not, how do I define pride or how do I define humility? Because we need to know we're really talking about the place you hold. You should think of yourself, you know, when my kids, this was quite a few years ago, at dinner, my kids were raised with college students living with us, and a certain sarcasm would exist at the meal between the landlord and the college students. And then your son, who may be 11 or 12, 
gives you a little sass at the dinner table. A little attempt at humor. And you look at your son and you go, I don't think you should speak to your father that way. And confusion of face comes over them. You might say, what does Evan think he's doing? That's, not, that's pretty proud. What do you mean, father? Well, I'm his father. I'm better than he is. He's a poor excuse for a human. <laughs> I am a great excuse for a human. He shouldn't be talking to a great excuse for a human. That way. We understand, when we understand where we are as man, when we understand where you are as an individual, know who you are. If you're not that bright, go, hey, I'm not that bright. If you are that bright, go, hey, I am that bright. But God is the, an the antidote to all the stupid that comes along with you thinking something of yourself. When you think of who he is, when I think of Christ, when man has not achieved this great dominion that God made him for, we can only not see it just in our future, we see it in our Christ. When we see our great achievements as a king of ancient Babylon, and God says, hey, you're forgetting something in your reality. You're defining you and your circumstance. You're not defining the way reality is, which God is in his heaven. He is able to abase those who walk in pride. And we're reminded of this in Psalm 144, and I, I had come to the passage because of the similarity in the two lines, and then he goes kind of different directions. First, Psalm 8, he says, What is man that thou mind for him? Yet thou hast made him lower than the gods. A little lower than the gods for a moment. Here it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. This is to help you define the way the world is. Live by the way the world is, not by, again, Sunday school definitions of, of bad things and good things. Know that, that you, what you're stepping out to do is really, frankly, pointless. What passage comes to mind when you say, man is like a breath? James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get gain. Whereas you do not know about tomorrow, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and we shall do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The problem is not that he had a plan for tomorrow. Some people think, well, if we're humble, we don't have any plans at all. We are nothing. We'll be guided totally by your will. No, make some plans. Go get some gain. But you had better say, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You better say, God willing, God permitting, I will do this. Because you're brought a breath. You're a great breath. Some of you are the most beautiful breaths I've seen. You're just, you're just a mist. You're just 70, 80 years. I saw a story on Drudge. A guy is 145 years old, they say. What does he want? He wants to die. 
I mean, that 145 begin to wonder, can I? Can I die? You're not going to be able to live that long, 80 years. Some of us can smell it already. Understand where you stand. Don't just understand how to define a vice, how to define a virtue. Define the world that God has put you in, both for good and ill. Define what he has done to arrange it. Accept the arrangement. And so when he has taught you your lesson that you're a bohunkus and ought to be slapped around and left crazy for seven years, eating grass like an ox, that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, that when you come out of it go, yes, God is God. And he made me greater. You've actually learned your lesson. You haven't failed. Nebuchadnezzar got a wonderful, wonderful lesson. But you know, you remind yourself that if the Lord wills, I'll do what I plan to do. I need to put what I plan to do in its proper valuation and place. Yes, it is a vapor. But yes, it is the direction of the cosmos. God has made everything about man. He made his son man. He gave the greatest act potentially of any kind of loving agent could give. The infinite gift of absolute death for no guarantee of any positive response for the sin of somebody else. Now I call that pretty committed. Pretty directional. The highest thing in all dies for one of the lowest things. We are uh, able to arrange a world in which great men, great women can know they're great and be humble. Where people can be cured of the conceits of false greatness just by having looked at the heavens and looking at God and taking him as their Lord. When you look back at when you look back at Nebuchadnezzar's uh, end of his chapter 4, he says twice, my reason returned to me. You look at God, don't, don't think you could look, oh, I'm going to examine myself and I'm going to pick up on myself. Examine your God, examine the world he made. Remember if the Lord wills. Because your reason, that's the famous passage in Romans 1, because they, although they knew that God existed, they did not honor God as God or give him thanks. Therefore, he gave them up to the futility of their own minds. You've got to come to this or you're to some degree crazy. Some degree, you're a human in collapse. And your life is going to be measuring out decisions based on a silly philosophy. Take on God understand who he is let that put you in your place but understand that that place is not merely you might say the convenience of measured virtues it's the measure of the way things are and thank your God for letting you know what type of greatness he is giving to man and what he's given you in Christ and what we follow in being created and recreated 
by our God. Verse 7 of Psalm 144. Stretch forth thy hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters and from the hand of aliens. We have to recognize that not only is God greater than you, but he is Lord. That means he's not just in a different place, bigger, more powerful. Lordship means he has made choices regarding you. He has made insistences regarding you. He has made deliverances and grace regarding you. So you're not just recognizing who he is. We are crying out for him to stretch forth his hand and touch us because us knowing where things are and who's the greatest is important that you see God for who he is and what he does. Because when you know a God has a claim on you, that back part of your knee can bend and you could be on your knees before him getting the benefit of being on your knees before God. Let's thank him. Dear Lord, we're very grateful that you are who you are. You have made us great and we are silly about it. Silly in our pursuit of it, silly in our worship of it. Lord, teach us to understand the way your world is, that we would bow to you and recognize the greatness you've given man, especially in your Son, who has made us new creatures. And in his name we pray. Amen.